Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. We're in verses 25 through 33 today. And while you're turning there, I want to thank you and commend you, those of you that have stayed through this study the past five weeks. It's not been an easy one, I know. It requires deep thought, prayerfulness, and humility. But its truths are profound. They're deep. They're even difficult. But I pray you've been blessed through it. I know I have. Our text this morning, as I said, begins in verse 25 and goes through the remainder of the chapter. So let's read it now. Romans 9, 25 says, And he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. Well, this morning, we want to continue in our theme of Paul's answering objections to the gospel that he's preaching. I often say from this pulpit that the Bible holds in tension two great theological truths as it relates to our salvation. On one hand, God sovereignly chooses or elects those he would save. That is the primary emphasis here in chapter 9, the doctrine of election. He is correcting several misunderstandings and objections that his Jewish peers and kin had concerning that doctrine, namely that the vast majority of those who are believing on Christ are Gentiles and not Jews. But the other side of that tension is our responsibility. Even though God gets the glory when we're saved, he did it. He holds us responsible if we reject Christ as most of Paul's Jewish peers were. Their first objection is, well, Paul, since most Jews aren't believing on Jesus, surely they would have recognized him if he had been the true Messiah. And so they say he's not the Messiah. Their second objection is, since God seems to be setting aside Israel, in your opinion, and bringing in Gentiles into covenant relationship with God, that must mean God's original covenant had failed. That makes God a failure. And their third objection is, since only some... A remnant, in other words, and not all Jewish people are being saved according to Paul's gospel. That would make God unjust and unfair. So in short, uh, they are saying that the message that Paul is preaching impugned God's word, his power, his promises, and even his very character. And no wonder they tried to kill him. Of course, those accusations had all one thing in common. They were unfounded. They were wrong. 
Paul began the chapter by declaring his love for his fellow Jews and his desire for them to be saved. But Paul was also a realist. And he began this chapter with two indisputable facts that even his worst enemies would agree to. Number one, Paul says it's an absolute fact that most Jewish people are rejecting Jesus, their Messiah. But it's also an irrefutable truth that the Jews are God's chosen people. So he begins to give biblical evidence, as a courtroom lawyer might, as to why these two truths are not mutually exclusive and why the failure of most Jewish people to believe on Jesus does not impugn God's word, his promises, his power, or his character. And so as a lawyer will do, he begins to bring evidence. Exhibit one. From the Old Testament, Paul says, God's election to save has never been based on ethnicity. Meaning that just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're automatically saved or going to heaven. And he gives evidence that God chooses from within Israel to use some people and not others. For example, he chose Isaac and not his brother Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not his brother Esau. Secondly, God's election to salvation has never been based on good deeds. For example, Moses was a murderer, and yet God chose to use him for his glory and to leave Pharaoh in his sins. Thirdly, Paul brings to evidence that God has always in the Old Testament declared his right to show mercy to whomever he pleases, Jew or Gentile alike. In fact, in Exodus, when Moses wants to see the glory of God, that's the first thing God says to him. Now, Moses, I need you to know something about my character. I will show mercy to whomever I choose to show mercy. He's always claimed that right. And then there's the fourth piece of evidence, which is the subject of our text today. That through the prophets of the Old Testament, God predicted exactly what would happen in Paul's day. This is the evidence that Paul brings forth today. He calls one major prophet, Isaiah, to the witness stand, and then a minor prophet, Hosea, to the witness stand. Now they're called major and minor, not because one's testimony is more important than the other, Isaiah is a major prophet because he has a very long book of the Bible with his name on it. And Hosea's book is very short. That's the only difference. So in other words, this tension between God's mercy and his holding us accountable and his election and his purposes there are found in three ways. And let's just walk through them one by one. Number one, it is seen in Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now this is why it's so important, dear friends, that you read your Bible and that you don't skip over books of the Bible like Hosea that we're tempted to do sometimes in our daily Bible reading. Isaiah is a difficult book. It's a short book, but it's a very important book. Because in the New Testament, God uses the story of Hosea as an illustration of God's love for his church. Now, let's just review the story. It's been a while since you read it. Hosea was a godly man who was a prophet, and he prophesied to the ten northern tribes of Israel. You might remember after King Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam became the king, and there was a rebellion. And the empire was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom. You know that eventually, because of their infidelity and their worship of false gods, uh, God, the true God, judged them by sending the Assyrians, a people more wicked than they, 
and they were scattered to the four winds. That was God's judgment on them. But before that happened, God prophesied through Hosea that it would happen if they did not repent. And he called upon Hosea to do something as an illustration of God's relationship to the northern tribes that from our perspective seems pretty strange, very strange. God told this godly man, Hosea, to get married. And he told him to marry a prostitute. And he married a woman named Gomer who was a prostitute and they had three children. And those children and their names represented what God was about to do. He told Hosea to name the firstborn Jezreel, which means to scatter. God was about to scatter Israel all over the world. The second, a girl, was to be named Lo-Ruhamah. The word Lo means not, Ruhamah means pitied. And so God is saying, I'm not going to have pity on you when I scatter you to the four winds. And then the last child was to be Lo-Ami, not mine. God is saying, I'm going to treat you as if you're not even my children for a time. Now, the names of these children describe that the special relationship that God had with Israel had been severed by their worship of false gods. But the point that Paul is making from this story is not that God cast them away forever. He did not. Even though they were scattered and it seems that God did not care for them or have a plan for them anymore, he actually did. And if you remember the rest of the story, Hosea was told to rename these children. Uh, Jezreel's name really wasn't changed, but the meaning of the name was changed. Uh, the word Jezreel literally means to make this motion with your hand, like you're throwing out garbage. From that point on, though, it was to be known for planting. Uh, Jesus told a parable in the New Testament about a sower who went out to sow. And in those days, they didn't row up the garden and drill holes symmetrically. They just tilled up the ground and took great heaping handfuls of seed and spread it everywhere. And Jesus pointed in his parable that some seed falls on good soil and comes up and bears fruit and some doesn't. That's the parable of the soils. And so that is the word Jezreel. No longer would it mean to scatter abroad. It would mean to plant, to bring back and make secure. And the name Lo-Ruhamah, God just took the prefix Lo off and says her name now is going to be Ruhamah, which means I pity. So God begins to pity the nation again. And Lo-Ami the low is taken off, and now those who were not mine are mine. You see the point that Paul is making. So what Paul is doing, I believe, is saying that God has always worked that way. If God can do that for Jews who were not at one time his people, he can also do it for Gentiles who at one time were not his people. It's a commentary on verses 23 and 34. Just that tries to go back up to Romans 9, 23. This comes right on the heels of the metaphor of the potter and the clay. Paul says, God is the potter, we are the clay. We can't call him unjust. We can't demand that he makes us in a certain way. He's sovereign and we're not. But graciously remember, God tells us what he's doing. Verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Who are the vessels of mercy? That's those of us who are being saved, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, Paul includes himself in that group whom he also called, here's the key, not from among the Jews only, but also from among who? The Gentiles. So it's Jew and Gentile are brought together in this covenant relationship. So the tension, therefore, between God's mercy and man's responsibility is further seen in the remnant of the believing Jews. That's our second point. 
seen in the remnant of believing Jews. Verse 27, now Paul calls Isaiah to the witness stand. This time it's Isaiah who's called upon to testify. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out, Paul says, concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now Isaiah, unlike Hosea, prophesied down in the southern kingdom. But they were very similar to their cousins to the north. They also were rebellious. They also turned to false gods. And ultimately, after many warnings and many prophecies, God sent them away into Babylonian captivity. And incidentally, this is a pattern that we see over and again in the Old Testament. God blesses Israel, Israel rebels, God judges Israel, and then God restores Israel. Over and again, that's the pattern. God blesses, Israel rebels, God judges, God restores. But, but even in the times of rebellion, God always had a remnant now, you know what a remnant is, right? Those of you that deal with cloth or textiles, it's a representative piece of the whole. It's not the whole bolt of cloth. It's just a little cut out edge so that you'll know what the characteristics of the cloth are. And so that's been true of every generation. God has had a remnant. Uh, he's going to use the example of Elijah later on. Remember, Elijah prophesied in probably the low point of Israel's history. Almost everyone was worshiping the Baals, the false gods. In fact, it was so bad that Elijah called out to God and says, I'm the only one left that loves you. And he meant it. God said, no, you're not. I have reserved for myself 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So um, God in every generation shows mercy and has a remnant and preserves his own. But, and this is a very important conjunction, but he still holds accountable those who do not believe in every generation. In other words, we're not puppets. We're not robots. God's not treating us as, as mannequins. We know that he holds us accountable because he judges people for their sins. He sent Israel into captivity. He let the Assyrians um, disperse the 10 northern tribes. And, and we know that he's the judge of all the earth. And as we heard Abraham from Genesis 18 last week, will not the judge of the earth always do what is right? And so if God judges, he's right to do so. And that is what Paul is declaring through the mouth of Isaiah. He says, if God had not given us a remnant, we would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They became so sinful that God decided he was going to wipe them off the map. And he did so, save for Lot and his two daughters. In fact, archaeologists can't even find a greasy spot out in the Middle East where Sodom and Gomorrah once were, but we know they were once there. In fact, God just erased them from the planet. The point is that Israel, and by extension all of us, deserve the same, don't we? If we got justice, if we demand justice from God and got it, all of us would be treated like Sodom and Gomorrah, but because God is merciful, he leaves this remnant of people. And aren't we glad that he does? So, it is seen in the remnant of believing Jews. But finally, thirdly, this tension between God's justice and man's responsibility is ultimately seen in God's treatment of the Gentiles. Now, you will remember that we started this 
study five weeks ago, the title of the first sermon was, What About the Jews? And our question was, um, what are we to do with the fact that the Messiah came and most, Jesus, most Jewish people did not recognize him? What are we to do with the fact that, that most people who name the name of Christ, who identify as Christians, are not Jews, but Gentiles? Well, um, Paul answers this question, doesn't he? Let's look at the end of the chapter uh, to verse 30. What shall we say then? That's what Paul does when he's about to make a, a point. He, he anticipates that question. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? That's the question they're asking. He goes ahead and asked it for them. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now you have to admit, this, this is a curious thing. Jewish people spent their entire lives, most of them, pursuing righteousness. They, they wanted to be right with God. They made sure they took a certain number of steps on the Sabbath and no more, that they'd be right with God. They even managed their diet so that they would not offend God. Everything about them was designed to be in harmony and to attain righteousness with God, and yet Paul says they didn't. And yet here are the Gentiles, most of our ancestors, honestly, who were pagans, and they were living like pagans do. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They were living it up like most pagans in our society are doing today, right? Living for the moment. And yet, the vast majority of people who were being saved came from that background and, and not the other. And it leads Paul the question, why is that? And he answers it right away, because they, that is the Jews, did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were to be attained by works. Whereas they misunderstood salvation. They thought they could be good enough they thought they could be meticulous keepers of the law. And incidentally, do you know who was the poster child for works righteousness before he was saved? The Apostle Paul. Paul loved to quote his resume. Hebrew of the Hebrews. Pharisee of the Pharisees. Of the tribe of Benjamin. As touching the law, blameless. That's what he thought. If anyone could go to heaven through works, it was Paul. And yet then he saw the Lord Jesus in his risen glory on the road to Damascus, all of that became worthless. And he recognized salvation is not by work. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is why his heart is broken. And that's why in the next chapter he says, look, I bear them witness, my Jewish friends and peers and kinfolk, they're zealous for religion. They're sincere in their faith. But he says it's a zeal without knowledge. They've put their trust in the wrong thing. And God in His sovereignty has brought in many Gentiles because they, didn't, they recognized, many of them, that they could not make up for their past sins with good deeds. And they recognized that they could only be saved through faith. In fact, Paul goes far to say that this doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a stumbling block to the Jews. 
They trip over it. They can't get past it. In fact, he said almost the identical same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says to the Gentiles, that simple gospel of putting your faith and trust in Christ is foolishness to most Gentiles. By the way, most Gentiles aren't being saved either. But more of them than Jews. That is, they think of a man, a poor man at that, dying for others in a God-forgiving sins. That made no sense to most Gentiles. But he says to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They can't get around the fact that they have to come to God on the same terms that their Gentile enemies did. Humbly. As I often say here, with empty hands and outturned pockets. They couldn't bring anything to the negotiating table. They had nothing to negotiate with. And so they tripped over that. And Paul says that's the explanation for why more Gentiles are being saved than Jews. Now, let's, let's wrap this chapter up. How do we harmonize the fact that the Bible says that God chooses and shows mercy to who he wills, and yet he holds accountable those who don't believe? Are you ready? I don't know. I really don't. I truly have been studying this rather intensely for 30 years. How do we harmonize God's sovereignty and election and man's responsibility? And I'm no closer than I was 30 years ago. Um, I can't do it, but it's not because it's not true. It's because I am feeble-minded. That is clearly what the Bible teaches. The Bible leaves that tension in place. And in the heart and mind of God, who is infinitely more holy, infinitely superior to my mind, I'm sure it's not a problem at all. So that's why when your pastors come into this pulpit and we come to Romans chapter 9 and other passages like it, we emphasize God's elective purposes and we preach it with full throat and without apology. And why we come to verses like John 3.16 and following, which says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We preach that with full throat and intensity and, and without apology. Because in God's mind and in his economy and in his plan, those two things are perfectly harmonious. We say, Pastor, look, uh, I know a few Jewish people, but um, most people here, you'd have to admit, are not Jewish. What does this have to say to us? I think quite a bit, at least four things. But it's based on God and not our culture. Our culture's not unique. God is unique in the sense that in the 3,000 years that have intervened between Isaiah and Hosea's prophecy until now, God's not changed a bit. In fact, we've been studying on Wednesday nights in this room the attributes of God, and one we studied recently was his immutability, that he does not change. And because he does not change, things that were true about God 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago are true today. Would you agree? That makes sense. So here's four things about God and his salvation that have not changed, that are applicable to all of us today. Number one, God still effectually calls and saves a remnant. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, talking about the road that leads to heaven, that there's a small gate and a narrow path that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. So Christian, don't be discouraged when you go to work tomorrow, to school tomorrow, and you are in a minority as a Christian. That has always been the case. Now, there's, heaven's going to be full of people. 
from every epoch of history, but in every epoch of history individually, Christians are the minority, Jesus seems to be saying. So don't, don't be upset about that. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. It's a small gate and a narrow way, and few there be that find it. The second way in which God has not changed is that salvation then and salvation today is not through genetics. We don't get grandfathered into heaven. See, that's what many of Paul's Jewish friends thought. Because we're Jewish, we are in. And you say, again, pastor, not many Jewish people here. What, what are you talking about? Well, I will say, I have talked to many a third and fourth generation Southern Baptist who said their conversations seem to indicate that they believe they're going to heaven because their grandfather was a preacher or their mother taught vacation Bible school. And friends, no one goes to heaven through genetics because our grandparents were godly. God's not changed. The third way God has not changed as it relates to our salvation is that salvation is not and has never been through ethics or morality. If anyone could have got to heaven through ethics and morality, it was the Jewish people. They were meticulous keepers of the law, that moral law in particular. And so Jesus said, unless your works exceed those of the Pharisees, which would have been nearly impossible, you'll not see my kingdom. The point is no one goes to heaven through ethics or morality. If people could go to heaven by being a good neighbor, we'd all become Mormons. And I'm not being funny. We're planting churches in Mormon country in Utah, not because they aren't good neighbors. In fact, my friend who pastors a church said, look, if you're just looking for a place to raise your family, where you don't have to lock your doors at night, where people are good neighbors, this is the place to be. But he says, it's the most lost place I've ever been in my life. Because almost everyone there is trusting in their morality and their ethics to get them to heaven, just as the Jews in Paul's day were. It's never been that way. There's one more thing about God's salvation that has not changed. Salvation is not through religion. I assume you're fairly religious or you wouldn't be here on Sunday when you could be at the lake. I said that particularly with the group that came at 8.30 this morning. You had to be really religious <laughs> to come to church at 8.30 on your day off. Friends, let me say something as kindly as I know. No one ever got saved through religion. You go overseas and those people are religious. You pass by every cult house and church house in America, in this part of the world, and it's going to be a pretty full parking lot. Even in our world, which has become more and more secular, we're still considered very religious. In fact, in all of the research, the vast majority of Americans say they believe in God. They also believe that they're going to heaven when they die, that vast majority. But when asked, why do you believe, that is, on what basis do you think you'll go to heaven, the leading answer is because I'm a good person, right? But, but they usually couch that sentence with a prefix or, or, or postfix. I'm a good person, but I'm not perfect, right? And what they should do is start the sentence with, I'm not perfect, and put a period or an exclamation point there. But they say, comma, but I'm still going to heaven. 
Friends, based on the word of God, no, no one gets saved by ethnicity. No one gets saved by genetics. No one gets saved by ethics or morality. And no one certainly gets saved by being religious. And so why I commended you this morning for being here the last five weeks, please don't interpret that as me congratulating you for being a Christian. Those are two very different things. And I need you to listen very closely unless I misunderstood as I have studied and taught you the doctrine of election. Even though God is sovereign, what is true in his word in both testaments is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so may I one more time in your presence rehearse for you the plan of salvation. Not assuming that everyone here is a Christian. We studied it together this summer so that all of us could share our faith. Remember? God, man, Christ response. It begins with God. God created the heaven and the earth and he created his highest creation. Man, he gave him a perfect environment in which to live the Garden of Eden. Gave him one rule, don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Man ate, woman ate. Sin's curse passed upon man, passed upon the serpent, upon the earth, and upon humanity. And that is, every one of us are born with a death sentence. Not only are we sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Secondly, see, God is the creator. He's our judge. Man's part in that is he is a sinner. And thirdly, what did God do about our sin problem? He sent Christ into the world. In that we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins. He died for us. And before he died for us, he lived a perfect life so that he'd be qualified to take our punishment on the cross. And then he died a criminal's death in excruciating pain on the cross. And he literally died. And he was laid in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose again, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. So what are we to do? How do we get in on that? Is how do we appropriate God's forgiveness through what Christ has done? Well, the answer is by faith alone. That is to believe it. Put your trust in it. Put your full weight upon it. Say, Pastor, don't I have to do something? That's what the Philippian jailer wanted. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you'll be saved. You don't do anything. You, You receive as a gift what Christ has done. And that's why we can look you in the eye and say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Rescued. You say, Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But really, that's a moot question. Because as we're about to sing, God's grace is greater than our sins, isn't it? Doesn't matter what the sin is. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever comes to Him with that contrite and broken heart, Remember I told you that God has never changed? Here's why I'm so (laughs) zealous to tell you these truths. God has not changed. All the promises of God are true and trustworthy. And if he says, if you come to me with a broken and contrite heart, I will not cast you out. He never has and he never will. Anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. That includes you. That's a great tension, isn't it? God says if we're saved, it's because he chose us. But if we are not saved, it's because we did not respond in faith. Those things are true. And that's the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this has been a a difficult month of sermons. 
And yet, Lord, the, the things that are most valuable often come to us um, through great effort. And so, Father, we're thankful for, for this church family who is patient, humble, and is teachable. And Father, though I make no claim of having perfect understanding of your word, Father, you have illuminated our understanding this month through your spirit. We thank you, Father. Father, we pray that we take the things that we've learned and be doers of the word, not hearers only. And specifically, Father, I pray if there's a person here today who knows you not, that they would not despair, believing maybe they're not chosen. The fact, Lord, that you have convicted them of, of sin and judgment and righteousness by your spirit shows that you're drawing and wooing them, Father. And if they will repent, they are chosen. And so, Father, we pray that, that we would be quick to share the good news wherever we go, that the name of Jesus would ever and always be on our lips. Father, we're grateful that we don't have to understand everything you're doing perfectly to be saved. We simply have to recognize that you're God and we're not. We have fallen short of your standards, and therefore we're worthy of your judgment, but you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross, and whoever will put their trust in him will be forever saved. Brand that, quicken it to our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.